But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome to the Sex and Murder podcast, where this week we'll be covering the ghostly phenomenon surrounding one Alma Fielding in 1938 and 1939 in Croydon, England. Alma was seemingly plagued by a poltergeist. At first, stuff around the house would be knocked over before moving into full possession and psychological torment. The main source that we'll be using today is a relatively recent book called The Haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale. Kate Summerscale does a brilliant job of capturing the atmosphere of pre-World War II ghost craze of England. So with that, let's get into Alma Fielding's Poltergeist. Now this story is as much about the psychic detective that worked with Alma as it is about the poltergeist itself. So I do want to spend a moment at the beginning to establish both of them before jumping into the story. And there's a little content warning here. There's a brief discussion of animal death as well as talks of sexual assault. Nothing explicit, but it's still worth a warning nonetheless. We begin with Alma Fielding, born 17th of August 1903, to Charles Smith, a plumber, and his wife Alice. Alma had two siblings, Doris, who was born in 1900, and Charles, who was born in 1915. Alma's mother was a performer, having performed in the Paris and London Fair, and was part of the Half Lady Alive Act, as well as the Mermaid and the Bottom of the Sea Act. She also performed in a handful of plays. The family lived in central London until the area was bombed by German aircraft in 1917 when they moved to Croydon. Around the time of the move, Alma met 17-year-old Les, a builder and general handyman. As a young girl, Alma's uncle George trained her to be a tightrope walker, trapeze artist, acrobat, and dancer. A few years after moving to Croydon, Alma was involved in a bicycle crash that resulted in an abscess on the kidney which would be drained several times. She had to stop training in acrobatics, but would keep up dexterity training throughout her years. Alma and Les were married in 1921 to a rather strained beginning. Alma's father did not approve of the marriage. Not only that, they had to rush the nuptials. Alma was three months pregnant. Alma's poltergeist in 1938 wasn't completely out of the blue. You see, she actually experienced a few odd disturbances throughout the years. Like in 1929, when she suddenly lost her sight. Quote, I told nobody because I could walk, ride my bicycle, and could carry on. I never had an accident. In her words, it was as if a sense was given to her, like she could see the world through her skin. As she touched playing cards during game nights, she would receive a picture in her mind of what she was looking at. She managed to hide this blindness from Les, but he found her out when he noticed that she wasn't looking at the screen during the pictures. Later that evening, he placed his hand in front of her face, and she didn't flinch. They went to the optometrist the following day. He claimed that there was no reason for the blindness but there 100% certainly was no sight in those eyes. He gave her some drops and sent her on her way. The following morning, she ran out to Les in the garden, shouting that her sight was back, just like that. One night in 1930, before moving to a house that would become ground zero for the haunting, Alma was playing cards with Les and some friends when she felt a little sleepy and went to lie down on the lounge. She seemed to have passed out half unconscious, Friends tried to rouse her to no effect. As she laid there, she saw the figure of her father, dead four years at this point from consumption. He reached for her hand. She then recalled that he drew a cross with his fingers over her left breast. 
When she came around, there was a mark of a cross on that breast. It looked irritated, as if blood had been sucked through it. The next morning, inspection revealed a lump just under the scarred cross. A trip to the doctor confirmed that she had breast cancer, and the breast was removed entirely. Sometime later, another tumour was found. This one was treated with radium needles. What was unclear to Alma was whether her father had merely informed her of the cancer, or if he was cursing her with it. In this story, we find the beginning of a thread that we'll see throughout the rest of the case. Alma seemed to trade physical energy for psychic, feeling ill as she tapped into the powers from the other side. And if there was someone qualified to study these trends, it would be Nandor Fodor. Nandor Fodor, chief ghost hunter for the International Institute for Psychical Research. Born Nandor Friedlander of the Hungarian town of Beragazaz on May 13, 1895. He was number 16 of 18 children. He was known later in life as quite a hard-ass on mediums, exposing quite a few as frauds. But ultimately, he was a believer. He just liked to filter out the charlatans from the authentic, and there happened to be a lot of charlatans. Young Nandor himself had some experiences. At his grandfather's funeral, when he was seven, Nandor heard his grandfather's voice as the coffin was opened for a final blessing. Now, he wasn't sure what his grandfather said, for his grandfather spoke Hebrew, and Nandor didn't. Missing conscription for World War I thanks to his studies in law at Budapest, he would move to New York City, leaving behind a sweetheart named Irene Lichter. He brushed up on his English by way of books. He'd always read supernatural tales with fascination since childhood, but after moving to New York, he got his hands on Harrowood Carrington's Modern Psychical Phenomena. And this book was, quote, a revelation to him. Carrington's theory on poltergeists was that they were neither ghosts nor hoaxes. Instead, kinetic energies projected without conscious thought by psychic individuals. Adolescent girls were particularly sensitive to these kinetic energies. The spiritualist movement was nothing new at this point, but by this time, we're sort of looking at the tail end of the height of its popularity, so there wasn't a lack of material about spirits and communication with the dead that he could devour. Fodor became friends with Carrington, who introduced him to other men whose work interested him. He would go on to write interviews with the likes of magician Harry Houdini, psychoanalyst Sandor Ferenzi, and author Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, you will see how the works of these three could influence how Fodor went about his ghost hunting. We have Houdini's methodical search for tricks, Ferenzi's belief in repressed memories and split personalities, and Doyle's belief in the fantastical despite evidence to the contrary. Now, we'll get to the contradictions of this last bit eventually. In 1922, Irene made it over to America and married Fodor. They had a child soon thereafter, though it seems Irene didn't exactly want the kid. She tried to induce miscarriage on multiple occasions. In 1924, Fodor's father passed away, and he went to a seance where he called out to him in Hungarian. His father's parting, parting words were, sweet son, but of course in Hungarian. In 1928, Fodor interviewed Lord Rothamir, Newspaper Mongol and open fascist. Rothermere offered Fodor a job as his advisor on an annual salary of £1,000. Now, translated to today's money, it's roughly £66,000, which from my understanding is double the average yearly income of the average person in Britain today. Accepting this job meant that Fodor and his family would be moving to England. And in England, Fodor got balls deep in the ghost scene. He joined the ghost club 
the London Spiritualist Alliance, and the Fairy Investigation Society. It was his belief that, through continued study, the mechanisms of psychic communication will be understood and used just like that of the wireless and the telephone. While visiting Budapest in 1933, Fodor attended a seance with Lajos Pep. He'll be involved in the story later on. Before the seance, Fodor was invited to search the room, the medium, and the other sitters. Fodor inspected the clock, the furniture, looked inside Pap's mouth and ears, ran his hands through his hair and beard, and inspected Pap's one-piece boiler suit, which was taped around the wrists and ankles. Everyone held hands with the person next to them. Pap was able to snatch, seemingly from thin air, a green iridescent beetle which he handed to Fodor. Over the next hour, Pap would produce over 50 bugs as well as flowers and twigs that fell around the sitters. Now, Fodor would write about his experiences and hunting news for Associated Newspapers and talk to Rothermere about letting him head a regular supernatural column. Rothermere was not open to the idea, especially after Fodor sent him a message claiming it was from Rothermere's late brother, Lord Northcliffe, that he had got during a seance. He wrote, Dear Fodor, I have a great mind to send your letter to a mental specialist. You are certainly not sane. I would advise you to stop this nonsense forthwith. Otherwise, there will be very serious consequences. Now, this letter, along with Rothermere's open support for the Nazi party, probably a little bit more on that considering Fodor was Jewish, he started to seek out other means of employment. He published himself a 50,000-word encyclopedia on psychic science in 1934 and applied for a post at the newly created International Institute for Psychical Research. The institute had itself a rocky start. You see, its aim was to combine spiritualist thinking and scientific means to prove the supernatural. Within the first two weeks, all the scientists on the board quit. Fodor was immediately appointed Chief Research Officer. In this position, he would be the middle ground for the Institute, less reverent than spiritualists, more open than the Society for Psychical Research. This position, he would also receive a salary from, though it would be a third of what his previous job had been. On weekends, he would take Irene and his daughter Andrea on ghost hunts and seances, and they would often stay overnight in haunted houses. He regretted that he was not psychically sensitive himself, not without trying at least. He did inject himself with mescaline and saw some pretty wild colours before it wore off. And he also took nitrous oxide at the advice of a friend, Ronnie Cockersell. Ronnie had himself a spirit guide called Cosma, and he would also take Benzedrine in his seances. In 1935, Fodor and Irene attended a seance hosted by flower medium Hilda Lewis, that's Hilda with a Y, at the British College of Psychic Science. Robin was her spirit guide, and she was able to accurately tell Fodor that his daughter had just moved schools and was friends with a girl named Pamela. Hilda would be the first medium that Fodor would invite to the Institute, or at least the first to accept, to perform controlled experiments. There, she undressed in front of two female members of the Institute who checked her. Hilda had burn marks on her abdomen, which she claimed were from contact with humans. Once the lights were off, Hilda produced 17 roses and cornflowers, slowly flowing from her hair. She told Fodor that she experienced birthing pains as she apparated the flowers. A few days later, she was able to produce 10 more flowers, which were damp 
as if freshly plucked that morning. Frodo asked if her blouse was not wet underneath. Hilda replied by taking his hand and running it over her, around her back, and under her breasts. Fodor noted no moisture. She removed her coat, and then her blouse, and Fodor suggested that they film it. You know, posterity, we, we need it for evidence. That year, Fodor was introduced to Harry Brown. He claimed levitation, and Fodor wanted a photo of this. The photo he got seemed as though Harry was jumping up from the chair and not levitating. Fodor tried replicating the move, but he was unable to land perfectly in the chair, so he declared the phenomena a real thing. He wrote to a physicist friend about it and invited him to join and see for himself the real thing. The physicist declined. Fodor got our buddy Pap over to England, where he got him to apparate items again at the Institute. Pat produced gravel, rosebuds, and two legal documents by the orphan board of Budapest, along with a dead snake that was 28 inches long. Now, Fodor, his experiments weren't limited to mediums, no, no, no. Supernatural photographs were all the rage too, and there was a recent study from Nevada that claimed to have captured the astral bodies of animals. So, Fodor got a guy to build him a cloud chamber that could detect ionizing particles. He got himself a license to experiment on living animals and set about knocking out mice with ether before killing them. He had a camera rolling as the guillotine went down. He found no vapors rising from the bodies. Fodor then published a paper which called out the original experiments, suggesting that they clean the lenses and maybe clean the room to remove dust from the air. This phenomenon was akin to watching for fantastic figures, he wrote, in the burning coals of the fire or the sky grazing to find shapes in the clouds. The authors of the original paper then threatened to sue for libel, and this court case would keep poking its head up over the years. Later in 1935, Edgar Wright of Wright's detective agency, on instruction from the Institute, was charged with following Fodor to a seance with the flower medium Hilda. The detective found roses stashed in an attaché case, as well as some stems from lilies in her coat. This, this is the moment that Fodor realized he needed a keener eye. He had been suckered in. He found out that Hilda had been using a hidden lining in her coat to materialize the flowers, and how she had paid off a switchboard operator to feed her information about clients, such as Andrea's change of school and her new best friend. The snake that Pap had materialized, still in storage at the Institute, he was told by the Natural History Museum was a dice snake, two years old. He rang around to reptile shops, and no one served a man to Pap's description. He arranged for Irene to get access to Pap's hotel room, where she found his suitcase had a double lining. Not only that, it seemed he wore a whalebone belt underneath his clothing without medical need. He concluded that Pap had smuggled the snake live over from Hungary before killing it in the hotel room and hiding it in the belt. Before the seance, he hid the documents in his shoes, for Fodor was able to hide and produce paper this way himself, and he hid the various knickknacks in various crevices around his body. He filed Pap under Not Proven with the Institute. He spent more time unmasking hoaxes, but was careful not to publicly shame them. As far as he was concerned, they were just trying to earn a living. He almost got suckered into another medium, his neighbour, Dick Woodward. While not working as a medium, Dick had himself a few tricks by the way of making flowers in the room shuffle seemingly with his mind. Fodor was close with his neighbour, so he was furious when Dick's honest-to-God supernatural powers were nothing more than a string and safety pins. Now, it really didn't help uh, Fodor's anger that Dick was running his mouth, boasting how he had fooled Fodor. When confronted, he denied fraud. 
Fodor denounced him as a scoundrel and a liar. There was also a rumour going around that Irene was having an affair with Dick. With that, Fodor packed his family up and moved house. Two years into his ghost hunting, Fodor was beginning to lose faith in spiritualism. The dead didn't speak, or infest old houses. Self-professed mediums all turned out to be fakes. But he still believed that individuals had supernatural powers of some fashion. Even this early in his ghost hunting, he was formulating a theory concerning mental abnormalities that allowed people to access a type of psychic energy that was able to interact with the minds of others. You see, he read a lot of Freud, and built out from his theory about unconscious desires revealing themselves through slips of tongues, jokes, and ticks. When he was making notes on it, he met a medium whose personal thoughts aligned with this theory. Eileen Garrett agreed with Fodor that her gifts were born from psychological rather than spiritual. She had herself a spirit guide called Yuvani, an Arab warrior, who she believed wasn't mystical, instead was a manifestation of part of her subconscious. Alright, time for a little bit of background on Eileen Garrett. As a young girl, her aunt beat her for talking to invisible friends. She lived with her aunt after her mother drowned herself in a well in 1863, when Eileen was just a few weeks old. Her father then shot himself six weeks later. Now, after she had said beating, Eileen sat by a lake and grabbed a baby duck. She held the poor thing underwater until it drowned. She then repeated for every duckling in the pond. She placed them before her and, quote, saw a grey tendril of smoke swell up from each corpse. She would go on to kill crows and rabbits until one day she just stopped. The reality of it hit her, I guess. Months after the duckling incident, she was out on the farm when a hunting party passed by and snatched her up. As they roughly groped her, she was passed around. She managed to struggle and kick enough that they let her go. From that point on, she would space out, projecting her mind outside of her body. She would use this out-of-body projection to soothe her mind through her life. Like when a child she had contracted meningitis and passed away. Or another child that she had that passed away just five months after that one. She had one daughter that managed to survive infancy. After the death of her first two children, her fourth child passed away just hours from the womb. Eileen felt as though her senses had been multiplied after these tragic events. She describes it as being, quote, tuned in to new frequencies. Eileen would assist Fodor with ghost hunts. At Ash Manor in 1936, they met Maurice and Catherine Kelly. The Kellys had been victims of poltergeists, bangings, ghostly footsteps, and the figure of a small man in the doorway. He was malevolent, wore a smock, leggings, and a cloth hat. When he appeared, he always rolled his head back to reveal a deep cut across his neck from ear to ear. Under a trance, Yuvani informed them that the man was a spectral automaton who appeared and lived off the energy of human wrecks. Eileen was then possessed by a man named Henley, a 16th century nobleman who had unfinished revenge on a rival, as unfinished as it could be, for the rival surely would have been dead by that point. Fodor told him, Get, go on, scat. Back in London, Yuvani revealed further information on the Kellys. Maurice, you see, was a homosexual and alcoholic, and his wife Catherine was sexually frustrated and addicted to morphine. Fodor contacted the Kellys, who then informed him that it was all true. Maurice would write to Fodor a few weeks later to tell him that the hauntings had gotten worse. Fodor then told him to just forgive himself for his homosexual urges, as this case 
had confirmed that the supernatural event occurred when there were forbidden feelings. Now, we would also have him appearing later that year at the famous Jeff the Talking Mongoose case, but that is something I actually want to get into in a future episode, so just note that Fodor checked in on this one as well. Psychic News would write some pretty bad articles about him, denouncing his work as being obsessed with sexual theories and technological gadgets. Fodor finds sex in mediumship, one headline read, it wasn't exactly unfounded. There was the case for hidden desires, and Fodor himself wrote about how certain psychics would enter a, quote, state of voluptuous erotic ecstasy, which was followed by true orgasm. Fodor would sue psychic news for the malicious falsehoods about him, but they would continue to be critical of his, well, criticalness. Which brings us to Monday, 21st of February, 1938. Fodor received a letter from Reverend Francis Nicole, informing him of a poltergeist attack. A one Alma Fielding, 34 years old, living in Thornton Heath with her husband and son. 13th of February, she'd been struck with a pain in her pelvis and she'd gone home with a burning fever. Having suffered from kidney problems before, she took some antibacterial medicine, some sedatives, and tried to sleep it off. She was in bed for days before she was joined by her husband, Les, who laid beside her with bleeding gums. They remained in bed for the rest of the week. Alma saw a six-digit handprint on the mirror above the fireplace, but wrote it off as a hallucination induced by fever, drugs, or both. Midnight Friday night, Alma and Les were asleep when they both awoke to the sound of a tumbler smashing, having fallen off the table on the bedside. As they started to clean up the glass, another tumbler flew through the air and smashed into the wall near them. Les told her to put out the light, and Alma did. After a moment, she tried to turn it back on, but no light came. She screamed out for help, and Don, her 16-year-old son, ran into the bedroom, ducking at the last minute to avoid a jar of face cream hitting him in the face. George, a lodger that was staying with them, followed Don and was hit with flying change. Don got some matches from the hallway and lit them in the bedroom. He found the reason the lamp hadn't turned on. The bulb had been removed. They found it unbroken on the other side of the room, still warm from being on just moments earlier. The next morning, as Alma was preparing breakfast, an egg smashed into the wall behind her, and a saucer snapped clean in half. She called the Sunday Pictorial, a newspaper running a series on Supernatural, and relayed her experiences. That afternoon, men from the Pictorial saw an egg fly down the corridor, as well as a china dog rattling on the floor, and a tin opener sailed through the room at head height. Saucers flew from Alma's hands, one exploding in her hands and cutting her. In the kitchen, a glass fell from a locked cabinet and smashed on the ground. Another egg in the air, and a piece of coal leapt from the fireplace, launching toward one of the reporters. A palm reader in the crowd that had formed outside the house was invited in. He informed Alma that she was a very strong carrier of ectoplasm, and predicted that her son was in danger. Fodor contacted the pictorial and was invited on the case. This paper wasn't the only one who had reporters visiting the house, though. The Daily Mirror had three men witness a book slide from the bookcase and a mirror drop from the wall. Now, Fodor couldn't make it to the fieldings the day he was invited, so he sent film technician Lawrence Evans. Laurie was an investigator at the Institute as well, a young one, 25 years old, who had lost all his money in Hollywood, married and divorced twice, all before moving to London, and was at the present going out with a film actress. Good for him. Laurie reported a wine glass jumping from Alma's hand, and was shown a wardrobe that had fallen onto Don's bed, though Laurie didn't actually see it fall, just the aftermath. At 10.30am on Thursday 24th February, Fodor walked into the Fielding's house. 
At the door, he gave Les three eggs and three tumblers, telling them that the ghost was free to break these if he wished. The day before, Les told him, they held a seance where a medium told them that there were murdered babies in the backyard and told them to plant marigolds over the site. That'll, that'll fix them up. Les introduced Fodor to Alma, as well as the lodger, George Saunders. He was a shoe mender by trade and was leasing a room. George had trouble getting around and walked with crutches most of the time, thanks to an injury from a football game when he was seven. Fodor started to catalogue when Alma told him what had happened in just the past few days. 36 tumblers, 24 wine glasses, 15 china egg cups, 5 teacups, 4 sauces, a salad bowl, 3 light bulbs, 9 eggs, 2 plates, a pudding basin, 2 vases, a water jug, a milk jug, and a jar of face cream. Fodor was also shown the wardrobe, still laying over Don's bed. Fodor then interviewed Alma alone. In addition to the cuts on her hand, she had bumped her head when she fell down the stairs, and again when a tin of polish had fallen out of the kitchen cupboard. Les also had a bump from a vase hitting him in the head. On Tuesday, the lid from the kettle had disappeared. She found it in Don's room on top of a china cat. Whenever something occurred, she told him, she felt a chill and a sudden pressure. Fodor asked if she thought she was psychic. She responded, I do not know. I dreamed once that Don met with an accident, and the following morning he was knocked down by a bicycle. She also described to him how she dreamed the cinema had collapsed, and the next evening there was a small fire in the projection booth during the pictures. The building was fine, though. Fodor asked if the animals had been acting strange. Alma reported Judy, the dog, would be found with her hair up and shivering. One of the three cats was acting strangely too, though she doesn't elaborate exactly how. Alma herself did not believe in ghosts, and wasn't particularly religious or spiritual, though there, quote, are things which we are not meant to know. Following his emotion theory, Fodor asked how marital life was, if she was satisfied at home. Alma reported that everything was, quote, perfectly normal. Now, there were a few odd experiences leading up to the items sailing across the room. Near the end of 1937, she heard a voice in the dining room that she didn't recognize, whispering, hurry up, hurry up. She also had a powder puff and a lipstick disappear out of her hand. Late Christmas, she was walking down the stairs when she felt a cold hand clutch her shoulder. Despite all the reports that he gathered that day, he hadn't seen the poltergeist in action until 1.50 that afternoon, when a tumbler flew off the kitchen table. Fodor went to the kitchen to observe it. They placed it back on the table, and he went back to the sofa. With Alma in view, as she left the kitchen with a tray of puddings, Fodor saw the tumbler fall again from the table. At 2.15, a teacup flew through the room, missing Les by inches. After Les left for work, George joined them and was accosted by hot tea from Alma's cup, which jumped from her hands. Dr. Gerald Wills, a 47-year-old physician who worked for the Institute, joined them that afternoon, along with Reverend Nicole. As Laurie went and got cakes, Dr. Wills and Fodor questioned the other visitors that had called around that afternoon. Doris Smith, that is Alma's older sister, claimed that Alma was always making up supernatural stories and that her mother had once felt the sensation of being strangled when she last visited Alma. Rose Saunders, Alma's best friend and George's sister-in-law, told them how a spout on the teapot broke off and flew across the room the Tuesday just gone. Fodor stepped into the living room to make a call and heard a saucepan thud against the wall. He also noticed the eggs he brought were gone and minutes later 
he saw one of them coast down the hallway and splatter across the floor. At 5.30 in the afternoon, Dr. Wills announced to Fodor that he witnessed a truly supernatural event. Les came in through the garden door and Alma was standing with her back to them, filling the kettle in the sink, and he notes that she was using both hands to do so. When a saucer appeared at eye level, roughly a meter away from him, and cracked itself on the corner of the back door. The fieldings identified it as the cat's saucer, which was usually outside. On the doorframe, they found evidence of fish. All of this, Fodor entered into the database as not evidential. That is to say, they had explanations amounting to someone very well could have done it. Furthermore, he interviewed Don, who said that he'd witnessed nothing supernatural. Despite declaring that he didn't believe in the supernatural, though, he did have an unease, which led to him moving out, choosing to stay with friends while the poltergeist was in action. A reporter for the Croydon Advertiser, Jack his name was, had been there the night the wardrobe fell. Everyone was downstairs playing darts when they heard a thump. Everyone went upstairs to check what had happened, and George, who was lagging behind on his crutches, called out as he fell in the hall, claiming an invisible hand had pushed him square in the chest. Alma suggested that it was a tumble from all the whiskey that he had been drinking that night. The next day, Alma was invited to the Institute. The first thing Fodor asked was if there were any further occurrences since he had left around 10 the previous night. Alma told him that morning she was having tea with Rose when a teacup and saucer leapt from her hands, crashing into a glass of milk, spilling them both on the ground. Dr. Wills added that he had witnessed, upon picking up Alma that morning, a scrubbing brush and soap tray following her out of the bathroom, tumbling down the stairs behind her. Alma agreed to being monitored for her tests. They made notes on everything she had on her person at the time. After that, she was led into the seance room, which was a former art studio. Now, to give you an idea of the layout, it was twice the height of a normal room, with very little furniture and a wooden floor. One side had a staircase leading to the gallery, and the other side opened onto a chamber where all the recording equipment was located. Over by the large fireplace was a curtained cabinet where the mediums often sat. Fodor placed five glass tumblers on the folding table in the cabinet. A light bulb was balanced in one and a rattle was placed in another. He also placed saucers and cups around the room. He kind of just hoped that the ghost would interfere with at least one of the items. Now immediately something stood out to Fodor. Alma walked around with the lights on. Most mediums preferred to work in the dark and were mostly stationary. 3.30, they heard a loud bang. A brass brush had fallen about three meters away from Alma, who Fodor was sure was holding a glass with two hands. Fodor picked up the brush. It was warm, and Alma confirmed that it was hers from her bedroom. They broke for tea about 15 minutes later. Nine new observers joined them, including Fodor's brother, Henry, and a woman called Nora Weidenbrock, otherwise known as the Countess. She was an Austrian author who smoked heavily and sat on the Institute's board. She claimed to have written Woman Astride While in a Trance, taking automatic dictation from a 17th century ancestor who disguised herself as a man to fight in the Thirty Years' War. Nora believed in survival of the personality and the return of the spirit. After tea, around 4.15, Alma was walking around the room with a glass in both hands when a small tin of liver pills dropped behind her. Alma said it was from her dressing table and, like the brush, it too was warm. Now, the running theory in the room was that these apparitions used energy to dematerialize and then reconstitute itself across distances. And it was in no way body heat. Don't even think of suggesting that.
At 4.45, Alma sat in the cabinet, saucer and cup in hand. Alma told them that there was something moving beneath her, under the chair. She could feel it as if she was sitting on something solid. Fodor found a glass dome behind Alma, uh, stashed just behind the seat. It was a dust cover from Don's room. Then we have an evening of saucers and tumblers rattling and falling from the tables. And this continued into the ride home. A saucer split in half in the back and the lid on a trunk banged open several times. Dr. Wills stopped the car so Fodor could get in the back with Alma. Resuming the drive, he was hit in the face with a bag and Alma lost a shoe and her diamante clip. In an effort to see if she was doing this, it was 100% absolutely necessary for Fodor to shift behind her and hold her hands from behind. Purely for science, we need to make sure you are not fooling us. Her left glove had disappeared, as did the right moments later, while Fodor was holding her wrist and without him noticing. As he observed the bare skin of her right hand, he felt the material of the left glove shift. It was back on her hand, again, without him noticing. Back at home, Dr. Fayworth, who lived nearby, came over to help with a couple of other experiments. Now, counterintuitively, Fodor let her put on Dr. Will's large overcoat because she was cold. She then exclaimed that there was something moving by her arm, moving down her hip, before feeling a hand in her pocket. Fodor checked the pocket that was indicated, and sure enough, it was the clip. Fodor then placed his pocket watch in the left pocket to see if it would disappear. Dr. Wills watched closely as Alma paced the room, her hands clasped in front of her. Fodor searched the pocket, and the watch was gone. After a brief trip upstairs, she sat down and told them she could feel something along her leg. Fodor found his watch back in the pocket. They continued this experiment with half a dozen other assorted items. Fodor wrote in the Journal of the American Society for Psychological Research that, quote, I have met a poltergeist, which is certainly destructive and yet not malevolent. In fact, to a certain degree, amenable to experimental suggestions. Yes, it seemed Alma was the excellent subject for them. She allowed herself to be inspected and held and touched as she worked. Monday, 28th of February, Fodor carried out another interview where Alma gave him an overview of her life up until that point. Concerning the blindness event, Fodor had heard of this phenomenon before, but had also heard how many of these performers had been found out as liars, seeing by cheating in some fashion. He believed that she was a victim of hysterical blindness, that feelings bypassed conscious thought and expressed themselves directly in the mind, allowing the patient to, quote, see. To make life a little easier and a little less boring, I'm going to spare you all the times it's documented when something disappears and reappears, unless there happens to be something rather unusual or intriguing about it. Because there was a lot of instances of this happening, and I'm sure you don't want me reading a list every two minutes. So back to the Institute uh, the following Friday, Fodor began implementing tighter controls on the experiments. In addition to Dr. Wills checking Alma over, he got Helen Russell Scott and Florence Hall, who took notes during sessions, to check her over top to toe. Taking a note from Pap, Fodor got Alma to change into a jumpsuit that was bound at the wrists and ankles. Her shoes were removed and checked, and she was photographed front and back before being moved into the seance room. In this session, Fodor asked Alma if she could try table turning, a method of beyond-the-grave communication developed by Maggie and Kate Fox, who I promise I will be doing a series on in the future. Basically, coded raps meant yes or no, or letters of the alphabet. Pretty straightforward. This test failed to provide coherent responses to the investigator's questions. 
We have ourselves a trick penny appearing that afternoon behind Alma. She told them it was George's and they phoned him to confirm. He informed them that he had indeed been showing his niece a trick and the coin had just simply disappeared from his pocket. Dr. Wills got signed statements from everybody who can confirm it, but he comments on the reliability of testimony since it would be possible to convince everyone to lie for her. Now it's at this point where we have the first mention that something wasn't great at home for Alma. You see, she mentioned to Fodor that Les wasn't happy with her coming to the Institute. She'd been doing this for a few weeks at this point, and he would rather her stay at home. She told Fodor that the poltergeist was particularly unruly that evening, and that three plates and tumblers were thrown around. She went to bed, and when she did, the bed rose several feet above the air while she was on it, before dropping to the ground. She cried out and Les rushed up. The bed rose several more times, as well as the chair beside her somersaulting with the crash. George went up, but everything was quiet by then. As he left, a chair skidded across the room and wedged itself under the door handle, locking him out. Alma was thrown against the headboard. Les told her, you better give in. She confirmed that she would go to the Institute again, and the house was quiet after that. Wednesday, they tried turning tables again. Still nothing. Fodor tried scaring Alma by shooting a cap gun in the hopes that heightened fear might bring about supernatural events. It didn't work. Fodor wrote to his friend Wilfred Becker, who returned with, quote, My general impression from the notes is that a lunatic is obsessed with the idea that she was possessed by a poltergeist might have caused all the happenings. He said that the conjuring of items was either artfulness or a great supernormality, and that unless something happened that was certainly outside the realm of human possibility, then it should be considered nothing more than a trick. Friday, 11th of March, Alma reports the poltergeist had begun stealing for her. While out shopping with Rose, she tried on a ring before deciding against buying it. Later that morning, it suddenly appeared on one of her fingers. Rose suggested that they go shopping for some pearls, so they did. Alma didn't handle the necklace this time. Sure enough though, as they continued their shopping, Alma felt something around her neck. She asked Rose to help her, as she didn't know how to unclasp it. Fodor believed that this was a manifestation of Freud's idea that compulsive theft was an expression of suppressed sexual desire, since Alma was well off and had no need to steal. She mentioned that her dentures were missing the night before. A little bit about the dentures. Uh, she required them after contracting anthrax. Her gums went black and one night... She was in such a state of delirium that she pulled a knife on Les and tried to stab him before he knocked it out of her hand, and then she ran out in the street screaming murder and fire. Les and some neighbors had to get her back into bed and call the doctor. The doctor then called the dentist to remove her, all her teeth. She also revealed to Fodor that when she was 16, she saw a long-faced man step from her bedroom cupboard. He usually visited at night. She passed out... And when she came to, she held a piece of paper with smudged, nonsensical writing. Her mother threw it in the fire when Alma showed her. These events involved a break of consciousness, leading evidence to Fodor's theory that psychotic breaks led to psychic phenomena. In his encyclopedia, Fodor speculated that mediums might discharge electromagnetic rays from their fingers and toes, or maybe psychic rods, or ectoplasmic threads. To test this, he got Ronnie Cockersell to carry photographic plates in his pockets. The idea was that the silver-lined plate would capture these rays or rods or threads when he projected his thoughts. Medium Madge Donahoe claimed to have produced many scotographs this way. Fodor's experiment failed to produce anything, though. His logic was sound. At that point, Franz Hess 
had received a Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic rays by using photographic plates up on a mountain. Out on the town a few days later, the researchers asked if Alma could psychically transport a piece of jewellery into an empty film canister that Fodor had on him. Alma agreed. They stopped by a jewellery store and Alma selected a ring with two stones. After trying it on and returning it to the shop assistant, they left. Down the road they heard a rattle in the film canister. She gave Fodor the canister to open and they found the ring. Fodor checked her coat for hidden pockets and found none. Funny enough, no one suggested returning the ring. Fodor admitted in his case notes that it was entirely possible that she could have used sleight of hand to steal the ring. But in his mind, the ideas that Alma was a fraud and that she was honest could coexist. There were more tests done, each with their own tighter control conditions. In an effort to try and explain what he was recording, Fodor reached out to Elizabeth Severn, a psychoanalyst who had been a member of the Institute since 1934. Alma had overheard part of the conversation Fodor had with Severn and told him that she did not want her involved with her case. Fodor ceased public contact with Severn but would continue to talk in private with her. Now, Severn was open to the idea of supernatural phenomena being linked to mental disturbances. It was her belief that people gave off etheric rays, like radium, which could then affect the world around them. She agreed with Fodor that the poltergeist was simply a manifestation of Alma's submerged emotions. Okay, sidetrack for two seconds here. In March, Fodor read a case similar to Alma's. Mr. Gilmore leased a room to Mr. and Mrs. Bradley. Flying plates and dodgy lights and all that sort of stuff. Now, Gilmore didn't believe in spirits, but would reportedly fall into trances after moving uh, the Bradleys in. The attacks, reportedly, only happened when Gilmore and Mrs. Bradley were alone together. End of February, Mrs. Bradley fled the house and Mr. Bradley barricaded himself in his room in case Gilmore, possessed by the poltergeist, tried to attack him. Fodor believed that Gilmore's unconscious desire for Mrs. Bradley were manifesting the attacks. So with that, at home, Alma and Les awoke to George screaming, Don't touch me, get away from me. When they asked him what was wrong in the morning, George told them that he woke up to Alma entering his room, grinning at him horribly. She was dressed in a red gown. Alma denied owning a red gown and that she had no memory of going into George's room that night. And then after that, she reports flowers appearing out of nowhere and random smells of rotting meat around the house. When she was in bed one night, she saw the reflection of her face in the mirror above the fireplace. Now, the angle that she was laying at, she shouldn't have been able to see her face reflecting back at her. When Les asked what she was staring at, the face disappeared. Fodor stepped back from his involvement in Alma's seances from this point for a little bit of a spell. You see, the Countess Nora would take over in an effort to nurture Alma's connection to the spirits. And it was on her suggestion that Fodor, take a moment, uh, his pragmatic manner was, according to her, alienating the spirits. Now let's talk about Nora Weidenbrook for a moment. Born in 1894, she had nightmares as a child of her father transforming into a large orangutan with yellow pointy teeth. Her monkey father would then slowly eat her. Her parents became estranged, and when she was 13, her father informed her that she was going to boarding school. Nora screamed as much as she could and tried to throw herself off a banister. For this, her father had her sent to a sanatorium. She refused to eat, so the staff would shove a tube down her throat by way of her nose and just pump food in. Now, she would eventually get some support working with a psychotherapist, 
and she started eating and painting. When she was discharged, she was sent to boarding school, and she would go on to marry a painter called Alphonse Percher in 1919. Back to Alma's seances. On her way there, she claimed to have materialized two living mice. Fodor wrote this off as her purchasing them either willingly or under a trance. Alma also showed them the cross that had been scratched into her forehead. George pointed it out that morning, and Alma said that the night before, she had a vision of her father reclining in a chair across from her. He must have done it, like he did with her breast all those years ago. Now, in the seance room itself, Alma called on the poltergeist, who Fodor had nicknamed Jimmy. Nora slowly said the alphabet, and Jimmy would knock to communicate. He promised the researchers in a future session he would conjure a bullfinch. 30th of March, Alma called Fodor to tell him that she had an out-of-body experience. She was at the pictures watching the man who found himself when she lost consciousness and found herself outside of the institute, where she saw cars lined up for the annual general meeting that night. She told Fedora about the chauffeur and described the cars that the members of the institute had arrived in. When she lost consciousness again, she was back in the theater. Fodor confirmed with the members the cars that they had arrived in and tracked down the chauffeur to confirm if he saw a woman wearing what Alma was reportedly wearing that night. He did confirm it, as did the members of the board, their cars. Now, something that was all the rage and quite very new at this point was quantum mechanics, and you can probably see where this is going to go. Some of the board members hypothesized that she had entered a quantum state traditionally called astral projection. Fodor was a little more cautious talking about the potential possibilities from this. It was entirely possible that Alma knew the Institute had a talk scheduled on astral projection in the near future. It could be a deliberately staged, or if to give her a benefit of the doubt, she had unconsciously mimicked a projection, falling into a trance and walking out before coming to outside of the Institute. At the end of March, Fodor investigated the haunting of Clive Richardson and his wife Eileen. Eileen believed that she was being haunted by the spirit of her ex-fiancé, Douglas, killed in a car accident after she broke it off with him, which sounds so much like the same scenario as the haunting of Bly Manor. These guys are relevant later on, so just pop a little pin in that. Fodor and Eileen Garrett, the June previous, had investigated a haunted bed in Essex. Two sisters felt themselves being strangled when they laid on it, and a third sister felt something furry. Fodor spent the night on the bed and reported nothing. That month, Fodor checked out a haunted wardrobe that was for sale. Apparently, an elderly man in a deerstalker hat emerged from it every evening, marched himself downstairs, and out the door. Another sinister wardrobe, owned by the medium Horace Leet, launched itself at a friend of his while she was on the bed. Its doors opened as it fell onto the bed next to her. Two Worlds Journal speculated that a spirit could inhabit a piece of furniture and fill it with malevolence, like how the spirit of Tutankhamun cursed objects removed from his tomb. Which, the curse of Tutankhamun, not exactly a thing. Fodor's theory was formulated around the animated objects in Jewish folklore, like golems, that is, beings compelled to move from the emotions of the living. He guessed that Eileen Richardson's table didn't move by the spirit of her former boyfriend, but rather from her unresolved feelings for him. Alright, back to Alma now. Fodor devised more tests outside of the seance room for her. He took her to a museum and asked her to apparate items from there. Officials checked her bag and she consented to Fodor feeling her up. For hidden pockets, I swear. Upstairs in the museum library, she materialized a terracotta lamp. 
Fodor was sure she didn't have it with her when he frisked her earlier. George called the following morning to tell Fodor that a burning necklace had appeared on Alma's neck. She thought it came from the museum. It had multiple chains and dangled 15 silver coins and a Byzantine cross. She showed the researchers the red marks and welts where the necklace had sat on her neck. That morning, she also reports she went to the butcher and was followed by, quote, an Indian chief. He had a shawl thrown across his shoulder and lots of beads. His headdress was falling back. They got photographs of the necklace. Fodor got these photographs developed as the seance was performed. Afterwards, when they were all in the room looking at the photos, a bottle fell from the nearby shelf. Fodor felt a cool air rush over him. He put his hand in front of Alma's mouth, and the breeze stopped. Florence Hall later said it was very clearly Alma, and she could see that she was blowing air across the room. Ever the optimist, though, Fodor wrote, quote, The fact that she blew need not necessarily rule out a psychic breeze or mean that she had tried to deceive us. Friday the 8th of April, Alma managed to materialise a bird after a whole bunch of theatrics about, oh, I've been hearing chirps all morning. A waxbill finch flew out from under her skirt. Not quite the bullfinch that Nora had requested, though. Helen Russell Scott noticed a ridge beneath the fabric on Alma's thigh and reached out and touched it. Alma told her that she had twisted her ankle and jerked her knee. Lifting her dress, she told Helen that she had wrapped it and tied a handkerchief around it. I may as well take it off now, she said. I don't think it is much good. She handed the piece of cloth to Helen and Helen saw something small fall from it. It was a tiny feather. Both the handkerchief and the feather were given to Fodor. It was clear at this point that she had strayed into trickery in order to please the researchers, or at the very least, keep their attention. You see, he had reached out to the curator of British Antiques, who told him that the lamp was an early Christian from North Africa, and referred him to someone who specialised in that area. The outcome? A 5th or 6th century lamp from Egypt or Syria. The Turkish coins on the necklace were minted in 1830, and the entire piece was a modern work. The museum reported neither piece as theirs. While he was doing this, Dr. Wills went on the hunt for a finch. No one in Croydon had sold Elma a finch, but most of them promised to let Dr. Wills know if she ever did turn up to buy anything. Back at the Institute, Fodor... Wilfred Becker and Shaw Desmond conducted experiments on saucer breaking. They couldn't quite get the saucers to break right as the poltergeist did. Just before one seance session ended, Fodor placed a brass brush outside the door and watched for Alma's reaction. She seemed genuinely surprised, but before he could point it out, everyone was distracted by a turquoise pin that apparated behind the radiator. So, how were the seance sessions going now that Nora was more or less feeding into Alma's delusion? Early April, Alma fell into a trance and began speaking as Bremba, a Persian artist. Nora thanked Bremba for the bird the other day, and Dr. Wills asked Bremba to project Alma upstairs, where Fodor was working, either so that he would see her, or so that she could report what he was doing, and Fodor could later confirm what he was indeed doing. Brembo refused to participate in such stunts. When asked why, he said that Alma's body was weak, and that she would die if he tried. He promised he would give them a gift, located behind her. Alma came around after Brembar left her, left her, and she couldn't quite remember what had happened. Dr. Wills searched the chair and found a locket. 
After this session, Nora told everything to Fodor. Both were excited for very different reasons. You see, Nora believed that Alma had channeled honest-to-God spirits, and Fodor believed that there was no dead Persian spirit, but rather another part of Alma's unconscious mind that had manifested. In Freudian terms, a superego to Jimmy's id, a moral center to the impulsiveness of the poltergeist. And that is where we're going to end this episode of Sex and Murder Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next episode for the second half of Alma Fielding's poltergeist story.